Osiris. Part of my attraction to the Americana scene was it seemed to be this environment that was very open to you defining yourself. And so that felt like just a really ripe opportunity. It became like a happy home. Hi, this is Maggie Rose. You're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. I am your host, Maggie Rose, and I'm fairly certain that a lot of you are going to be familiar with our guest today. She is from the UK. She was born in Bristol, and I fell in love with her after her first release, her debut album called Walk Through Fire, released in 2019 and produced by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. And so did the rest of the world. It was nominated for a Grammy four times over, and I had the privilege of getting to see her perform for the first time after already being familiar with her music at the Americana Music and Honors Awards ceremony, where she played one of my favorite songs from that record called Far Away Look. And I already loved the recorded version, but to see her standing at the center of the stage at the Ryman Auditorium, just belting that out was nothing short of powerful. She's had many endorsements, but from people like Elton John and Brandi Carlile, that's next level. And she's enjoyed a meteoric rise to fame, just one Little example of that would be that the first time she played in New York City, she played at a venue called Rockwood Music Hall, which I've played before, and probably 150 people could fit wall to wall. Well, just a few months ago, she got to play Madison Square Garden, opening up for Chris Stapleton. So that should just give you an idea of what kind of leaps she is making in her career in a pretty short time. She's been called a country soul sensation. She's redefined the genre simply by being herself. Which leads us very nicely to her new follow-up album called Stand For Myself, also produced by Dan Auerbach, released in July. She describes the album as a window into my mind, my life experiences, my politics, my hopeful and sentimental sides, and my hope for humanity at large. And I have a feeling this is going to garner her a few more Grammy nominations and maybe even some hardware to bring home. But we talk about being oneself and in control of the co-optable skills like the ones Yola possesses, the history of rock and roll itself and the fluidity of genre, her writing process and some of her songs' deeply personal origins, and about her debut on the silver screen as she steps into a very meaningful role. So we have a lot to cover, but let's let Yola tell us all about it. I love isolation. I love being left alone with my own thoughts. I happily and enthusiastically navigate any one of the myriad horrors that try and enter my brain. I cuddle them close. (laughs) And me and confronting issues are like besties. I love it. It's really cathartic for me to just like rake over the most agonizing coals. And hopefully that then makes something nice for people to engage with, you know. Well, I think it certainly has. You've, maybe to your emotional detriment, but not to your musical detriment, (laughs) the music that you write from (laughs) ruminating on those emotions is just absolutely wonderful. And congratulations on Stand For Myself. Just what a follow-up to Walk Through Fire and all the attention you're getting for it, deservedly so, but these potential nominations and just being so well-rounded sonically and also artistically in what you're saying and putting out there. It's just super inspiring to see someone taking up that space that has been so hard to define for such a long time. And you're doing it seemingly effortlessly. Well, 
it felt like my process was about getting back to my original self, my four-year-old self, who had all the answers and was right so much of the time. It's actually sickening. And <laughs> just like four-year-old and five-year-old me thought, oh, you know, you essentially want to be a singer-songwriter. You're probably going to try a bunch of other stuff, probably try and be in a band, probably try and do some other things. You're going to hate all of that because everyone's going to try and control your voice and who you are and basically control your life instead of you having any control over your own existence which seems like a really basic adult requirement. And they're going to make that seem like it's an achievement, like it's this kind of higher tier motivator, like it's not foundational, it's not a basic need to just have basic control of your own existence. They're going to make that seem as though that that's the top when you finally have the right to kind of define yourself. <laughs> and so I wanted to bring that whole concept down to a foundational need, like as necessary as food, water, and pay <laughs> is my ability to just have control over no one else's life, just mine, just my own. Right. It seems reasonable. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's somehow it's been like framed as this, wow, and you're in charge of your own life. I'm like, yeah. Because I'm a grown up. That's what we have to do. <laughs> we have to. But when you have potentially co-optable skill sets, people then start deciding they have a plan for you. And so like part of my attraction to the Americana scene, both in the UK and America, was it seemed to be this environment that was very open to you defining yourself. And that right. was more than other spaces I'd been in. And so that felt like just a really ripe opportunity to define myself as like a lover of a lot of genres of music, which mercifully Americana is an umbrella term of a lot of genres of music. <laughs> so yeah, it became like a happy home in a way. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it became a big part of my story. That was definitely the attraction for me. Yeah. It just felt more inviting and inclusive and malleable in its understanding of what each individual could bring to the table. Exactly. But I love, like, there's quotes that describe your music that are just beautiful, like kaleidoscopic in how it describes your sound and involving, like, folk and disco and funk and soul and that like parliament 70s psychedelia but also that 60s brit pop yes. and i think that there are people who i'll speak for myself i struggled with the lack of definition being perceived as a lack of focus or scattered and I think that we're starting, especially with the Americana audience, that's part of your appeal. Your versatility is your brand. And you slip into all of these different sounds so gracefully and beautifully. And I think that that's exactly the appeal of Americana and why it's summoning so many new voices to kind of join the ranks. For real. That's perfectly said. And as perfectly said is the idea of summoning, summoning, is that they're actually looking. <laughs> like some people are like, we ain't even looking for new people. Stay out. But like, they're like, no, this is the come in squad. No, come on in. The water's fine. What do you do? Yeah, I'm sure it's Americana. Like, <laughs> because there's so much under it. It's so rich. Like it's, you're able to define yourself in this space. And so... Like me uh, self-identifying as a genre fluid artist became something that was a strength. It was, I want to speak on how all of this music speaks to each other. The reason why Americana is this umbrella term is, is the conversation of genre, but of a certain group of genres and how they talk to each other. But I'm like, I really think that none of this music 
is an island because we don't really include jazz in the story of Americana or in the story of country, but we have Western swing, which is clearly influenced heavily by jazz. And so none of these genres are an island. And that's kind of, I suppose, I was always going to be attracted to <laughs> like the most versatile of the genres in their potential explanation. I suppose rock and roll is another genre whose roots are plentiful. And maybe the definition has been kind of really whittled down to a nub, but like its roots are so many fold. I think you can hear that in my music. You can hear my love of Tina and her rock and roll sensibility and how that related to soul music and my love of Elton or Queen or and how that relates to how I approach some of the songs. And that's part of the story of my ability to be across all of this space is that I'm not talking about all of these things isolated. Every song is a conversation between one bit and another, like Stand For Myself. It's clearly got a lot of rock in it, but it's clearly got a bit of psychedelia and a bit of soul music in some of the ways of the delivery. And so it's like, it's not clearly one thing. Like even the songs that seem relatively clearly one thing, there's always something else that you weren't expecting in there. Like 90s Britpop. <laughs> They'd be like, where's that? And then I'll sing them a melody isolated. They'd be like, oh my God, that's really Blur or Stone Roses or something. I'd be like, yep. Because I was born in that time and that was the song Whatever You Want is like really like a 90s Britpop influenced melody. Like it came from me just like listening very nostalgically to those kind of bands from my childhood and the melody came out of that and then like the backing track ended up becoming really just countrified. <laughs> but it's, so it's like how does Britpop and our idea of Americana kind of smoosh together. And it turns out quite a lot. a lot of Americana artists that are kind of influenced by modern British music. Erin like Tasjan's a very clear example of someone who grew up on Oasis but does very much Americana. But like British music and Americana are like hand in hand. The more we look at it, the less defined everything is. And actually, the more everyone kind of smashes. And that's totally fine. Well, you mentioned jazz and... I had the honor of getting to see you on Sunday at Newport Folk Fest. And I feel like that's a perfect microcosm for what you brought to that festival. And then also playing at the Newport Jazz Fest as well, being invited to do so and belonging so fittingly on both of those stages, I think is, mm -hmm. it is paralleling our collective reckoning that all of these sounds are within our heritage. And I think that hopefully country yes. will come around to that self-awareness that, you know, there is Western swing and that jazz is all over that and that soul is all over that. And I think a lot of people have come to that, but I mean more in the commercial sense. But that was such a great set, first of all. Yeah, and it was really great. It was so fun to see you oh, on stage. You. And to see on such a historical stage and act like your own that brought all those elements to Newport Folk Fest. I know that Jay Sweet is a big fan of yours, as he should be, but it was just, I felt the embrace. I felt like there was a spot for me there, kind of having felt like the new kid in class. That was my first Newport Folk Fest. And your show, your set was one of those that mm -hmm. I was like, I totally belong here. And... It was full of joy. And I think you have a lot of songs that are very contemplative and that are probably a product of 
the pandemic and the awakening that we've had as a society about inequities with race and bigotry and, you know, just different identifying factors that we have. But there's also so much joy in this music, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned Aaron Lee Tazjan, who's a buddy and also someone who's just wonderfully you know, fits in his very own box. But I know that you all wrote Stand For Myself together, but it predated all of this. Uh, Diamond Studded Shoes. Oh, Diamond Studded Shoes. Yeah, it was Diamond Studded Shoes, and it did predate. And one, two, three, (laughs) four of the 12 tracks were written before Walk Through Fire. So Stand For Myself was written before Walk Through Fire. Mostly, I always take things to get like tweaked. I love a good tweaking of a song. Sure. Diamond Studded Shoes was another one, a lot of which was written, but some tweaking was required. Whatever You Want was another one that was written. And I played that out for a clear year and a half before Walk Through Fire. And then I put it aside to just wait for it to have its time. Again, some tweaking required on that song. Like I'm always missing a bridge. That's just like a standard. Like they all came back with bridges and uh, and break the bow. Like I started writing that, and I played that out probably for the longest. Actually, I wrote a lot of that in 2013 on the evening of my mother's funeral, and I was riding back on my motorcycle, and a bass line came into my head, and that stopped me from crying so hard because you can't really cry and ride a motorcycle. And just trying to get the kind of tears to get out of my eyes so I can see where I'm going. And concentrating on this bass line was just really helpful in the process of getting home alive. <laughs> so I pull up in front of my house and then the first verse count starts coming down. I just speedily start typing it into the notes function on my phone. I start singing it in the melody that comes to my head over the bass line that I've been humming. I hum the bass line into my phone and then I sing the melody that I'm thinking of and that's what stuck. The first lines are silently break the bow, fall into the deepest sleep. It's like nursery rhyme and then the dream of mangoes on the tree, sugar cane and shoeless feet and everyone's like, this sounds really tropical. What's the inspiration of this? I'm like, my mother was from Barbados and that was her imagined idol. And so, so much of that came out at the funeral and like I just I played it out until I felt as though it turned into something but again I didn't have a bridge I never have a bridge guys um I've always been writing about this kind of stuff and that I just finally got to a point where like white men weren't the majority in the room right <laughs> so I could actually talk about some things that affected my life and like the opening track is co-written with Joy Aladakun and Dan Auerbach and me and Joy could talk about being dark-skinned black women in the spaces we've been in playing guitars and you know, feeling othered in those ways and how diminishing yourself doesn't pay dividends. And you think it's going to, you think the switch is going to help you and it doesn't. And that's really what that song is about. And we know that because we've learned that the hard way. not something that if I didn't have another black woman in the room I would have been able to talk about that song would have no way happened you know and so yeah the product of the pandemic is a big thing in that black people were talking to each other 
checking on each other, making sure that we're all right, that all this harrowing crap doesn't drive you completely to depression and to know that we're not isolated and alone and that we've got each other, you know? I made so many friends from having just moved to this country and then just like talking to people online and checking up on people, some of which I barely knew, who I was just like, I'm gonna check on everyone and make sure everyone's okay. And we were all doing that. And then we all connected more deeply at the hand of this because we realized that we had to because some people weren't going to check on us or they were to assuage their own guilt, but not to actually check if we're okay. So we just made sure that we had us. I spoke with Allison Russell, who I know is a dear friend of yours, and she said, you know, how important it was to her to have you essentially living together. You guys were in like an artist commune situation because of the pandemic. You were living in Madison, Tennessee together. And what a life saver that was for her and for you guys as artists, just to be able to gather around the table and talk about the ambiguity of what the pandemic brought, but then also just the uncertainty, this responsibility that you personally never asked for in helping people figure their shit out with this racial inequity when, you know, that was just another burden that was placed in your lap in a lot of ways, I imagine, with people coming to you to have you explain to them how they can do better instead of just listening or making room. I mean, it had to have been an incredibly overwhelming time and potentially a creative time, but harrowing. It started off as straight harrowing because we were all still, I think everyone got hit hard with the George Floyd situation because they had to see it as opposed to just read about it, you know. I think creatively, I was so busy with the first record that I was relieved to be doing nothing. And like, I'm a real professional at doing nothing. I'm so good at it. I can stare, sit on a couch with nothing going on and just stare out at the trees outside my window with absolute joy for days on end, pure silence, so easy. It's almost terrifying how good I am at it. Um, And so the pandemic, (laughs) I've got way more introvert in me than anyone would ordinarily think. I think that's what I discovered in the pandemic. That's the indication of an old soul, actually. Oh, good. Just to be chill and peaceful like that. Oh, I love it more than anything. You sound relieved. (laughs) (laughs) It was a true joy. And so, but I, so I was fully like emotionally open and unlocked in that way for just all of that information to go in and stab me directly in the guts. And so, yeah, the first thing was straight harrowing. You're right. Second thing was being really creative at the hand of it. I wanted to pick back up writing again. I hadn't been inspired the entire first cycle period because I was frankly working too much and everyone in my team and label and everything were learning how to not destroy my entire existence (laughs) because that's what you do. You slay, don't you? You slay. And then you try to slay the job and not yourself. (laughs) Right. You were in a bit of a baptism by fire kind of moment with your debut album where everybody, I mean, it, it was an astonishing rise to fame, but I imagine that, you know, that was not sustainable, that kind of exposure. And maybe this forced interruption was something that either you were going to have to insist on having yourself or, or, or just have to take a break or burn out against your will. A hundred percent. In fact, all of those things happened. And so <laughs> I burnt out. Although you seem incredibly resilient because it seems like you've just kind of picked up that same pace. You've resumed it rather. Oh, we, we've we've picked up the appearance of me going at that same pace. But the, <laughs> the reality of it is far more relaxed than it was in the first cycle. Good. We found a way of to work smarter. How do you regulate that? 
what boundaries is what it is. You have to have any form right. of boundaries. <laughs> you go. If I'm working you, on that. If you kill my black ass, no one's got no money. And so, <laughs> like, this is like a really obvious thing. But also, like, I'm going to speak on my manager, Charlie. I love her. She's like my blood relative. Like, she's my twin. She's so important to me as a person. And her welfare is really important to me as a person. And she's so brilliant. And what I find is that it's very easy for someone who is very giving and of a brilliant mind to give to the point that they're dead. And then you die by proxy. <laughs> so I was like, I realized that none of this shit was personal. Like she will literally slay herself. And then you'd be like, you need to live. You need to live. <laughs> I can't live if you don't live. <laughs> no one can take on the level of work that you're doing. And then you've got to really look out for your squad and make sure that they are balanced because then they will look at you with the same eyes and make sure that you're balanced and you need to have enough people that have your back, not just for your rise and for your success, but for your sense of balance and your ability to enjoy it once you get there. Is this always a requirement that you had or did you have to kind of learn this with just the last three years of like this crazy ride? Was there a point of reckoning where this boundary was galvanized or is this just always the philosophy that you've had it was when i got rid of the incarnation of myself i referred to as doormat yola <laughs> awesome i can't imagine that version of me doing everything i'm doing now it was a completely different ball game i had all the same kind of bs on the surface but it all was founded in nothing it, i'd had that real foundational sense of self eroded and I decided at one point to try and get back to that kind of first integer of myself as a kid that hadn't been molded yet and then to mold myself in my own image instead of be controlled and molded by someone else and what they thought I should be or whatever any large groups of people that had control over my life thought I should be it was pretty much my mother's funeral that gave rise to that just watching what she went through and how she interacted with life and demonstrates so many traits of like not understanding society that ended up pertaining to like clinical psychopathy in this inability to connect, but be extremely capable. But in this kind of guiltless, glib and superficial way and very self-focused way and very narcissistic way, and that resulting in an ability to kind of grasp a real sense of self, almost a real sense of joy, a real sense of achievement and depth of something. And when you aren't able to kind of impart yourself into your situation, because you don't really understand your situation, you don't really understand humanity, you don't understand how to connect, then that becomes like one of the biggest gaping holes in life, regardless of what you achieve. Like you can't share it with anyone. You can't connect in the way that you need to connect. And it makes life really miserable. So I realized that the reason that things didn't feel like joy were because I didn't have people that saw me. Everyone saw the strong black woman trope and I could have done anything. Yeah. I could have been the weakest person on planet Earth and it didn't matter. And even when I was really struggling with grief, people didn't see me. And so I had to find people that saw me. That was a decision I made in 2013. I met a dear friend who's essentially my brother back in the UK, although not actually my brother, called Kit. And he was just a patient friend who just sat with me whilst I was terrified. And, and I found more people who had that kind of heart. And that became the foundational philosophy of everything I do on the business side. The heart has to lead. You have to need something from what we're doing as well as give to the machine. You have to be able to get something from it. And he needed someone that had some sense of vision. I needed someone that had just this technical and creative open book mind that I could bounce off and feel safe bouncing off and showing like, you know, my beginner's guitar skills and, <laughs> you know, all of the kind of, 
fear that you have with starting something you're not an expert at and looking like a fool and all that kind of business. It sounds like it has been a journey a little bit in finding those people who would let you do that initially and finding those writers you talk about with this record, finally being able to pick the people you wrote with and having Joy Ladakun and Ruby Amanfu and people in the room because that's who you wanted in there. I mean, that's a victory in its own right. That's moving on to the sophomore record. Yeah, but it's, it's the victory is the word. It's a win when you can go, I need to speak on these things and I can call these people and I can and no one's going to stop me or suggest a different way. It's like, okay, go and do these songs, this whole vision, this whole plan. And being allowed to grow, I think, is the thing that is the privilege because sometimes people don't want you to grow because you're going to grow out of their financial capability to keep you like in the lane where you're useful to them, you know? And so if you become a big... Or don't upset the status quo. Yeah. So if you become a bigger deal than they're prepared for you to be, you might not play the role they need for you to play in their roster, in their life, if they're a collaborator with you, if they are a person that works with you in a tertiary way, as opposed to like an auxiliary member of your team, it might be someone who is like someone that you work with, like a director for a music video or someone that works in a fashion sense with you. If you're like, they've been working with you when you're a baby, baby act. And then you kind of go, oh, I need all of this stuff. And they don't know how to get the stuff you need. Then you need to move on to someone who does know how to get the stuff you need. You can't rock up on the red carpet in closing from TJ Maxx, you know, you you might be able to find something, but when you're plus size, nine times out of 10, I can tell you right now, you can't. And so (laughs) sometimes you need to level up and we all go through these levels where we figure out how we're going to level up our game. And the biggest challenge, especially in black lady life is people not trying to stop you (laughs) from leveling up because you're useful. Your voice is useful. Your skill set is useful. And so that's really been the big fight is getting to that point where people allow you to grow, regardless of how much of that a threat that is. Alice and Russell and I were discussing you. Maybe your ears were burning, but she was talking about how you know, you'll do it with a smile, but you'll see that you're booked on a festival and the tokenism that comes into play either being the only black woman on the bill or being the only woman on the bill, like there's others on the festival, just not the same day as you, that you have now graduated to this place where you can kindly insist that that's adjusted yeah, so that there are more women on there. And I know there's risk involved with that. And there is, especially as a woman, and I would dare to say as a black woman, you might feel like, there's going to be this perception that you're asking too much when that's just not the case. That's not the reality. You're asking for an inequity to be addressed. And then even within your own team, asking for more for what you deserve, not more, but to be met at that demand. Yeah. Like, why is that scary for us, for women? I think it's scary because we're told that, it's not our place to demand things as if it's uppity of us to demand exactly the same things that a straight white guy would ask for. Like, Oh, I need all of these things. You're going, okay, I'm on the road. I need a gazillion rises. I need a backdrop that like turns into a dragon and does all of these things. Let's think of the most random things you could ask. And like, (laughs) Can you give me half of this stuff? And you could go in and you could literally like shed that skin like you're at Mrs. Doubtfire, come back in as a black person and go ask for exactly the same things and get a completely different answer. I'm fully aware that that's my life that I live in and that's why I have to ask. Cool. So you want me, right? Interesting. Cool, cool, interesting. Knock yourself out, but 
how about you get three other black women and then we can talk. And I know that because I've got an English accent that I can be a little bit more comforting to people that aren't around a lot of black people. <laughs> I know that they might want me more because of not just being four times Grammy nominated or getting some good press and general plaudits and endorsements from the likes of, you know, the Elton Johns and the Brandies of the world and the Clive Davises and the Jimmy Jams and the like. That's all very important. <laughs> but it's also that kind of that sense of comfort that you can give somebody because of your accent is seen as a proximity to whiteness and a proximity to Englishness and to properness. And that then becomes a weapon that I can use to wield for the betterment of all of our people. And that's what I aim to do. That's what I plan to do is to constantly be a stick in the fucking mud, you know, and every single time someone's like, oh, hey, do you want to be my token? I'd be like, I'll look at the situation on a case by case <laughs> and go, you right, no. you have to. Yeah. And just go, no, this is not the time. There are very few times I will accept <laughs> being the only one. And like very, very few times. Now I have the position to do that. I'm always going to be having that conversation. And it's not a burden for me necessarily. It's a privilege to be able to. And I love it as well because it pisses people off sometimes. I just won't do as I'm told, which is exactly what I want. Disruption is in many times synonymous with growth, with advancing. Yeah. An initiative forward. And it's life. That's how you feel alive, by disrupting. Right. That's how you grow. I mean, if you're comfortable, then mm -hmm. shit ain't growing. And I feel like your extension of advocacy for other artists who you feel are not represented enough is so authentic to you. But like, you have a lot of really wonderful cheerleaders. I mean, Brandy Carlisle wore a Yola shirt on SNL last weekend. And there is this sense of community that I think you've nurtured with people around you that it's really wonderful to see. And I think you are living the philosophy of let's not pin each other against one another. Let's join forces and make room for all and all of us have valid contributions in this big wide world. This is another thing that Alice and I were speaking a lot about. Why is there this false sense of scarcity in an industry that has really manufactured that? It's not a real thing. I don't think consumers and music lovers are looking at a lineup and saying, oh, there's already one of those. I don't need to see another act like it. That's not a meritocracy. It's bullshit. And it's meant to create these weird confines within labels in the industry that make for this construct. It's the divide and conquer mentality. I don't mean to be the English person in the room, but I am. Like, I come from the OG divide and conquer right. squad. That was like a uh. whole game was like, oh, you guys look a bit happy all together in some weird little loving. Got to break that up. That looks way too powerful. Can't be having that. You know, I'll often ask people, um, they'll be like, okay, so, you know, we talk about colonialism, like it's been going forever, but we know it's also, that wasn't necessarily the case before the 1500s, 1600s even. But we also know that that means that at least... <laughs> You know, we might not know a lot about prehistory before BC, but we know there's a clear 1600 years that have gone unaccounted for. But there are crowns and gold and, and things older than 1600 years. So who was selling the gold at that time? And they're like, oh, yeah, there's loads of like artifacts that are older than 500 years old, 400, 500 years old. I'm like, of course there are. And who was selling them? Who was making the stuff? And like, who had gold? Black and brown people. Any in Europe? Not that we know of. So where did any of it come from? And it's, of course, we were selling all the stuff. And so this whole divide and conquer paradigm is a modern history development to obscure us from 
our collective power, you know, and to make territories that maybe had less resources <laughs> seem more important, you know, and more powerful. And to obscure the idea of trading, of the richness of cultures before that time, in the UK, we refer to it as the Dark Ages, and we don't teach anything about it because we don't want anybody to know that Africans had all the stuff and did all the trading and that mathematics is African and <laughs> like so much technology, plumbing is African and ancient African at that. And even co-opting Egyptian culture to be like, you know, you'll look in a book and it's basically a white guy with a freaking Egyptian pharaoh's outfit on. I'm like... Wow, the caucasity is untold. <laughs> that tradition just keeps on going until we get to now. And it's like, you know, patriarchy still rules. Like it didn't before that. Sacred feminine was massive. We know that. But like, they're like, forget all about that too in the colonialist story. And we're going to now pit women against each other. So you and another blonde lady are not allowed to be friends anymore. Your ladiness has precluded you from being able to enjoy this person's company or their art or their anything, because apparently we're all so utterly fragile. So this scarcity isn't just the scarcity that is false. It's the paradigm that women don't like each other, the paradigm that we can't lift each other up, and that perpetual need to pit us against each other all the time in press, in everything that we do, to try and stop this sense of unity. It's utterly sad, it's ridiculously patriarchal, and it's untrue. That's beautifully said. And I think even to expound upon that, I do think that there is also still within our industry, as inviting as Americana is, but I'm talking about within the executive levels of the industry, there's a lack of creativity and inclusivity and acceptance where your appearance or your art is one of the reasons Like I have been told indirectly but you know when I've been shopping this project I just put out like we already have one of her and it was so reductive and I just was like one of her what and I know that that happens just incessantly so it's not even caring about us simply that like we wouldn't like each other our fragility of you know being comparable to the next I think we've all been activated I think that's really the term, actually, activated, you know, <laughs> like it just got to a point where we're like, we're done. I honestly think this idea of like putting yourself into spaces that allow you to do things you only tangentially even thought that you could do, like the idea of self-actualizing, being so far away because you're just trying to get to the ground level. And on every level, it doesn't matter what level you're on, we're all still fighting this same fight <laughs> to just be able to walk into a space and be comfortable, to be able to walk into a space and do what we need to do. And like you'll always find people that they need to curate their company because they need to find people who allow them to just like search for their excellence. That's something that we need to monetize. We need to, <laughs> we need to make the coalitions that we have translate to the bank so that when people aren't in these spaces where everyone's sharing information and rising together, they just don't have as much money. We need them to hurt in the pocket. And I think that what is happening right now is we're just like passing it on whichever way. If it's Alison, if it's Joy, if it's Ruby, if it's Brandy, if it's you, it's our sisters and we are tight. And we just want all of us to win. And when you subscribe to that paradigm and you truly pay into building in this way, there are more hands at the pump ready to help you get to the next level. I would not be making the music I'm making without the influence of Black women who've made music before me, without a doubt. Why are we acting like this is such a new thing? But for real, <laughs> everything. Why are we acting like it's so new?
Okay, I've been cast as Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Elvis movie directed by Baz Luhrmann. Bless him and his angel face. He is the best. He's the sweetest. He's a wonderful director. I've been cast as Sister Rosetta Tharp in the Elvis movie. The godmother of rock and roll. Yes, and more explicitly, the inventor of rock and roll. Let's not, like, just beat around (laughs) the bush here. So, playing guitar in a distorted way and shredding in the way we now associate with rock and roll, the aesthetics of rock and roll, directly from this woman, okay? So they were auditioning a bunch of people for the role and he was like, oh, we should definitely call Yola because I'd met him at that time. And so he gets in touch and it's like, well, just send us a recording of like an audition tape and then we can get you in if Baz kind of picks up on it. Baz took one look at it and goes, uh, her. So <laughs> he really oh liked how I threw my voice and I, it wasn't much of an extension for me because I grew up with her, but also for a good 15 years, I worked for a sample replay company that my job was to throw my voice to perfectly emulate samples to clear mechanical royalty. So obviously intellectual royalty still holds, but mechanical is freed from the re-recording. But a lot of right. the time, my job was to kind of imagine to phonetically code a voice and be able to get close enough for it to be mistakable for the thing. So then when it came to kind of voice acting in that way, to be able to kind of impart some of the timbre of her voice, some of her expression, some of her spirit, I'd had quite a lot of training in doing exactly that. (laughs) And so then that whole life of just being part of a production team for replay then really played into my ability to act and I was like just going through my process in the booth that it just so happened to be like acting so then Baz's nose is right on the bloody glass of the vocal booth in in RCA and he's just like directing I'm like I feel like we're already doing it (laughs) and so then his cogs start going of like okay I think she's gonna actually be one of the people from the musical recording that will make it to the actual casting and lo and behold i then get a message going we're thinking of casting you as the part if you're interested i'm like of course i'm interested and they go i'm gonna now learn a bunch of guitar and i'd never played a solo in my life and so i had to learn to solo but they knew i had all the kind of natural acting capability and singing capability so i had to learn to shred and so the, my first solos I've ever done in my life are on film. And I had to do them. <laughs> so awesome. In real time for 15 hours a day. That'll get you shredding. Nothing's a better motivator than knowing you're going to be in a film yeah, doing it. Nothing's better. Nothing's more terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Terror is a good motivator, though. Terror will get you moving. It really is. <laughs> I am so excited for people to see it, to, for it to open the conversations that it already is about the legacy of rock and roll, because it's not just Sister Rosetta Tharp, it's Big Mama Thornton, you know, it's Big Boy Craddock. It's so much to do with the origins of, you obviously, B.B. King and Little Richard and moulding Elvis and the church in America and him being the token white guy in a black area and growing up in all of this kind of, this environment. And that story, all that foundational stuff that we don't, what that looks like, there's so much detail, you know, that we wouldn't ordinarily get to see. And there wasn't much capturing of that stuff because of segregation. And so it's like we finally get to look behind the curtain on Elvis and the things that gave birth to him and consequently the genre that we know and love in rock and roll, you know, it's like, 
that's really what I've been passionate about for such a long time. And it's such a privilege to be able to be acting in a movie, even if doing what I'm doing as a musician, to uplift this story, to hold it to the light and to show, like, especially with women, how important their roles were at this time as matriarchs of art, you know, I couldn't think of a more important role in a movie at this point as a musician <laughs> for me to play, you know? Visionaries, the original A&Rs, you're going to be part of this realization of an accurate portrayal of the history of rock and roll because Boz is going to honor the story. I believe that he's just so well reputed at being such a great director, but you'll be part of the fabric of such a historical artistic documentation that will probably correct a lot of people's perceptions about what the history of rock and roll really is and humanize these figures that have contributed so much to our soundtracks of our life every day that we're not even aware of giving credit where credit is due. And maybe that's the biggest point. The credit where credit is due (laughs) is the thing that's been missing and then right. the ability to co-opt that story to whiteness and to go, okay, make an assumption comfortably that when it comes to contemporary music, that you didn't start anything. <laughs> Just rest in that, that <laughs> there's no living way when it comes to contemporary music that you started anything. I'm sorry, because you, you're not even the first people. <laughs> you, you, so... Before white people existed, there were other people that were browner. Then you move to cold places. It's a very good adaptation to get vitamin D into your body when there's less sun. That's all that's going on here. It's just science. You can't have been the first anything. I'm sorry, boo. Even with contemporary music, I knew that's more new. And like, you know, we can't go back millennia. But for real, every single time we look at the origin of something, you're like, gosh, there's a lot of black people. That's what it is. Even with country, (laughs) fight it as hard as you can and then go, oh, crap, spirituals. Oh, crap, blues. Oh, crap, soul music. (laughs) Like everywhere you look, oh, rock and roll. Well, look at what our native daughters did. Well, exactly. And that whole. Your friends with Amethyst and and Rhiannon and Layla and Allison. Yes. Just watch their Smithsonian documentary, everyone. Exactly. Everybody watch it. What we're talking about. Absolutely everyone watch it. (laughs) because they're really breaking it down to a level that everyone could understand as well like for goodness sake they're at the foundation of all of the things I don't pass the test of the paper bag cause I'm black You know, when I speak of especially Black America, but obviously Africans being the African here. And uh, yeah, like it's important to be able to to speak with this with an assumed knowledge. And the more I've done press over the past kind of year and a half, the more people have been like, and of course, you know, Black people were at the beginning of all of these things. And I'm like, it feels like a long time coming. It feels like me and Ali and Rihanna and Amethyst <laughs> were talking in 2016 at Americano Fest about this kind of stuff. Rihanna was 100% a stalwart of this narrative of reclaiming all of this music, you right. know, for such a long time, <laughs> you know? And so, like, it proves that, like, if you just keep battering away at it, that you can make some progress and people will start taking ownership as if they've always known it. And frankly, I can't fight that sentiment. (laughs) I'm like, take ownership of it. Please let it be your idea. I am so open to that. I don't need the credit 1% about that. I don't need the credit about anything that I do to try and freaking crowbar my sisters onto a bill because like, you know, Alison talks about it. I don't really, (laughs) I'm just doing the work. I'm just right. doing the freaking work. It's going to be done. If the more people feel like 
that they're part of that movement and that story, the more it happens. And so, yeah, I literally, I don't want any of the freaking credit. Just do the work, do it. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Yola. I really did. I particularly loved how she addressed the idea that she had somehow masterminded her way into a genre that would otherwise not celebrate someone like her. Obviously, her intuition was correct. She is so celebrated and she's occupying that space in the musical universe because that's where she belongs. That's who she is. And that's her response to that notion. It's simply, I'm in control of my life. Nobody else is, but I made it so. This is why I'm here, because I want to be, and I know who I am. Even how she uses her own personal grief with her mother's passing and puts that in her song. She is unapologetically Yola. And I think that that confidence and self-assuredness is really inspiring to see. Also, her talking about these co-optable skills. We all have a set of those somewhere. And I'm sure that we have people around us, well-intentioned or not, who think that they know the best plan for how you should apply those skills and excel at those. But it really needs to come from us first. That's how we can walk through doors, kick them down the way Yola is, and show up in the room ready and willing to be there. Another thing that I love that she spoke about was her vocal challenges due to just the biology of her voice and overuse but how she said to me a couple times in a row, I am music, I am music. So I'll navigate this problem, whatever it may be, and it will be waiting for me on the other side. I think that that was a really strong mentality to have. It's a head game sometimes when you have something like that that's associated with your identity. I am a singer, I am a performer, go away. So that kind of explains why Yola has just absolutely exploded onto the scene. Let's hear about all the ways in which she's going to continue to take over now. Because my lineage goes to the Gar, who are like a tribe in Accra, Ghana, who for millennia have been the seat of like artistic enlightenment and renaissance in the west of Africa, the region, and obviously where a lot of people came from that are now in America, the diaspora broadly, came out of West Africa. And that kind of effect of being kind of foundationally musical in that tribe is thousands of years old. And so when I tell people that my lineage is Acre Plains, they're like, yeah, you were always going to be like <laughs> I'm like, I, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I had no choice whatsoever. The pandemic like shook a lot of people, but I felt like I am music, so I don't need to be afraid of it. It's just, I am it. When I lost my voice, I had nodules way back. I was like, but I am music, so it's never going to leave me. I've just got to try and navigate the horror that is like the biology of my situation. But I've never felt distant from music. I've never felt like it's a separate thing. It's always felt as part of me as flesh and bone. Right. And I suppose that made being creative in the pandemic a lot easier, you know. And so there's definitely reclaiming these stories and reclaiming your heritage and your connection seem to come very much hand in hand. And I feel like I'm seeing both happen at the moment, mm. especially with African-Americans connecting with Africa a lot at the moment. The year of return in 2019, Nana Akufo-Addo and his efforts to connect African-Americans in Africa who have felt lost and disenfranchised and not having that direct connection and reconnecting in that way. I feel as though the claiming of these spaces and the claiming of Africanness are going hand in hand and are hastening each other. And that's something that I find fascinating and pertinent and to the importance of the telling of these stories. And especially when we talk the history of music and before we had African-Americans, we had Africans in America and 
that these things come from Africans. And it's very important to lay the credit where it's due in those ways as well. You know, it feels like a bit of a full circle moment as a gar person telling these stories. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm from the bloodline of the artsy people that gave birth to all of this stuff. I was going to wrap by asking you what you perceive to be a benefit of being a woman in the industry. What's the sweetness about that, about being a woman to you? From my lens of black womanhood, I know that the patriarchy exists and it affects what our lives and the way that it does. And it's going to take a while to be able to fully know how to navigate away from those structures as a society. In the meantime, I'm not going to age. So hooray for black. And <laughs> because <laughs> for real, this melanin is <laughs> life. It is everything. Like my skin hasn't changed since I was a child. Mm. I love being dark so good it's so good to be dark <laughs> i don't want to be light i want more melanin i don't want less and so being a black woman is great and also the squad is tight fyi like being a woman is great just broadly of any hue because the squad is actually tight like that you can find good volumes of people who have got you who have like got you got you you know, and I talk to yeah. male counterparts who have friends, but they ain't freaking guts out as hard for you as some of my girls are for me. Right. You know, and so that's meaningful. Just the sisterhood as outside of blackness, just broadly is just tight. Like, I don't want to be in another squad. I want to be in the lady squad. Like, you know, I date guys, right. <laughs> but I, when it comes to my squad, yeah. like, I'm like, I want to be in with the way that ladies treat each other. That is a vibe. It's the best yeah. vibe. <laughs> and so, like, I love that. And it even is. like my male friends, they have like male-female balance in their personalities. Blokes that are too bloke, girls that are too girly in the kind of patriarchal mm. idea of what ladies should be are also infuriating and so sure, it's yeah. like that idea of like real balance in womanhood is something that I think is just utterly beautiful in my work life in how to interact with people it's just it's a blessing and like as a microcosm as yes. a smaller part of that black womanhood is probably the best squad to be in hands down anyway it's just such a great existence and the skill sets are freaking on point and you feel like you can depend on a black woman to just execute whatever the heck needs to be executed because you've got two angles you've had to deal with of being deemed unworthy and as a result of that you slay fucking hard <laughs> well that's a wrap my friends i hope you enjoyed my conversation with yola i think she's so awesome such a fan of her music but follow her on her socials at I am Yola official. I am Yola official. And make sure to keep your eyes and ears peeled for the feature film release Elvis directed by Boz Lerman starring Yola as sister Rosetta Tharp. Holy shit. I cannot wait to see that. It's supposed to come out in 2022. So to keep up with me and my music and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. We still have a ton of tour dates left between now and the end of the year. Ring in the new year with us in St. Louis at Delmore Hall and find out where the rest of those tour dates are at MaggieRoseMusic.com. Give me a follow on With The Band as well. There's lots of special treats on there. Salute the Songbird is brought to you by Osiris Media. It's hosted by Maggie Rose, produced by Austin Marshall, Maggie Rose, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. Editing by Justin Thomas at Revoice Media. Music by Maggie Rose. Show logo by Premier Music Group. Graphics by Catherine Boyles. And we're going to leave you with a song from Yola's brand new record. It's the title track, Stand For Myself.
Osiris.